Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Professor Ed Ayers about his new book, American Visions, The United States, 1800 to 1860, which explores this most formative period in American history when voices of dissent and innovation help create visions of America still resonant today. Professor Ayers is the Tucker Boatwright Professor of Humanities at the University of Richmond, where he is President Emeritus. He is the winner of the Bancroft and Lincoln Prizes for its innovative histories of the American Civil War. President Barack Obama awarded him the National Humanities Medal in 2013, hailing his commitment to making our history as widely available and accessible as possible. Professor Ayers, welcome to That Said. Ah, thank you. So before we begin the substance of this wonderful book you've written, American Visions, The United States, 1800 to 1860, if you didn't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and why did you decide to write this book? Well, I'll tell you something that will be evident to listeners right off the bat. I'm from East Tennessee uh, and went to the University of Tennessee and then to Yale, where I got a PhD in American Studies. Uh, fortunate to teach at the University of Virginia for 27 years, where I was dean. And then I went to the University of Richmond, where I became president, finished that up in 2015. And I've been writing as hard as I can ever since to try to uh, make up for those years I spent in academic leadership, is what we'll call it. And along the way, I was worked a lot in public history. I was really interested in the ways that we might uh, connect with broader public. So I had a radio show and podcast for 12 years, and I tried to see what might be possible in digital history. I worked with lots of museums, and now I'm working to make history uh, as interesting <laughs> and useful as it should be uh, to uh, in our schools uh, with a project called New American History and another project called Bunk history, named after the Henry Ford quote that history is more or less bunk. The only history that matters, the Tinker's Dam, he said, is the history we make today. So we curate the history made every day in, in 5,000 different publications. And so uh, you can explore 15,000 different articles. They all connect up in ways and bunkhistory.org. So that's me and as quick a time as I can tell it. <laughs> well, the, well, the one word I'd add to this is that the history you write is very accessible. And I think that's really important to make sure that, that the sort of the lay reader gets it. Well, thanks. That's, uh, you know, a real purpose of my writing. Uh, my mom is in my head most of the time. She was a fifth grade school teacher for 30 years. And I told her I was going to get a PhD in history. And she said, well, what for, honey? We already know what happened. And so uh, everything I've written since I've kind of written to say, well, you know, you think you know all about this, but God, I've looked at it a lot. It's kind of surprising. So here you go. So I appreciate your kind words. It's it's hard to write about some of these things in ways that um, get to the point. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to do to boil down Moby Dick into three paragraphs, <laughs> but uh, I, I've done my best. Well, I think you did pretty good. So uh, why this book? What particularly about 1800 to 1860 interested in you? Yeah, I've never written about these years before. Uh, I've, I've written eight books, uh, most of them about the 19th century, but they tended to start with the Civil War and then go up to the beginning of the 20th century. And one thing a lot those books have in common is they're about really depressing subjects. <laughs> they're about slavery and war and violence and injustice. Um, 
And I did that not because I'm a morose person, but because I thought only if we really confront these things can we understand the legacy they've left and, and move beyond it. But after you know, 15 years of uh, not being able to write uh, full time, I thought, what do I care about now, now that I'm, I'm finished with the presidency? And I thought, I'd like to know what was the source of democratic promise in this country? You know, it's kind of depressing these days. We can look around and wonder about the future of the nation. Uh, what was it like to live in the United States when it was brand new, <laughs> when nobody knew what the country was going to become? And how was it that people even then could imagine a kind of democratic uh, future that I hope we still have? So I very consciously sought out um, people who I thought might have something to teach us and maybe inspire us at the same time that I didn't discount that this is really, in many ways, the worst period in American history. This is when four million people are held in perpetual bondage. This is when we... We, the nation, uh, take the land away of millions of acres from people who occupied it for as long as they can remember. And when we go to a war unprovoked against a fellow republic on the continent. So, you know, I find that people think that we're living in the very worst time in American history. <laughs> and all you have to do is be a historian of the 19th century to say, no, nah. <laughs> uh, there's nothing like enslavement. There's nothing like native dispossession, um, uh, that we're confronting today. So, if those people uh, confronting those great wrongs could keep faith in this country, I thought perhaps we could as well. Mm. The book starts with this line. This book is about visions, imagined paths between things that are and what they might become. And you go on to add, to a remarkable extent, the visions that have defined the United States appeared in the first two-thirds of the 19th century some in the language of religion, art, and literature, others in politics and power, and still others in commerce and invention. And the central concerns of this era still matter today, and that the vocabulary of national self-reflection that was created in this time is still resonant. It's a great beginning. So take us, take us through that at a macro level, and then we'll look at some of the various decades that you focus on. There's a lot of bold claims in there, aren't there? Uh, so let's talk just about the material things. This is when what we think of as the continental United States became the continental United States. So uh, this is when we really went from the Atlantic to the Pacific and drew the border with Mexico with the war and the border with what became Canada. So we have that. This is when the two-party system that we still uh, uh, live with was sort of cobbled together. It wasn't a part of the original vision of the founders. This is when America became dominated by evangelical Christianity. That was not hard hardwired in at the beginning. Um, this is when the books that are still considered sort of the greatest American novels uh, uh, were, were created out of nothing. And uh, the greatest poet, Walt Whitman, sort of appears uh, in, in unlikely places. Um, but I mentioned, too, that this is when the most widely used phrase in the world was invented, which is OK. Uh, and my wife, bless her heart, has to notice every single time when we watch a movie in foreign language, 
they all say okay at some point. And that grows out of a fad in a Boston newspaper in 1831 that happens to be picked up in a political campaign. It stands for all correct, misspelled on purpose. And so that's the kind of like the DNA from this period that still shows up in, in our, our life day. So all the way from the most profound, all the way to these trivial things, um, this culture, which seems so far away, you know, it's, it seems sepia. The people seem dressed in funny clothes. You know, they, they don't look like earlier versions of Americans. And yet they were the ones who kind of imagined what this country was going to be. So that's what I meant by that, uh, that when everything was new, um, when at the beginning of this term, um, People could move just as they had for millennia, as fast as the wind could blow or a horse could <laughs> or as a horse could run. And they could communicate just as fast as people have been able to for centuries before, which is as fast as a letter can be carried. By the time this period ends, in just 60 years, uh, we know that information can move with the speed of electricity and people can move dozens of miles an hour across hundreds of miles on these railroads and steamships. So. The amount of change that happens in just those three generations, and people might just want to think about how long ago was 60 years from now and how much have things changed since the 1960s, uh, the changes were more profound then. So these visions that, I, that you ask about are sometimes religious. Uh, this is when the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, begins. That's a literal vision. Uh, but it's also a time when people have a vision of America that might be without slavery. Uh, that might be a place where uh, Native people's rights are respected. But it's also when Edgar Allan Poe's visions of, well, we know what those were like, <laughs> come about, right? So there's always people with kind of unfettered imaginations of what the country might be for good and ill. So it's a time of uh, tremendous, bold thinking uh, that visions was the best word that I could come up with. Yeah, it's a great word. And it's sort of like we're untethered to um, a past that defines the future and the sky is wide open. Yeah. And, but so is the the bottom of the sea. People don't know, is this country going to survive? You know, and so uh, it, had, it has higher highs and lower lows <laughs> than a lot of other periods in American history. So let's turn to 1800 to 1829. And of okay. course, the chapters of the book are not necessarily sequential. There are overlapping periods where different things were happening mid-decade mid that right. we'll talk about. But in this 1800 to 1829 period, you write, quote, the young United States pushed in every direction at once. Rather than maturing and settling, the new nation uprooted itself over and over. So there's lots of things that go on in this period. There's um, stuff with Native Americans, the War of 1812, the Second Great Awakening. So tell us what, what you mean by, rather than maturing and settling, the new nation uprooted itself over and over. If we think about um, the model that people had in mind, which would have been Great Britain, <laughs> in which you have, you know, the society become population becoming denser, people connecting. Instead, these people are heading out for Kentucky <laughs> and Tennessee uh, and Ohio, um, but they're also heading out for Florida. Uh, in those decades, you just had states adding at remarkable speed. Uh, and the, you know, once the United States wins the revolution and they're able to expand into the West, uh, they do with remarkable speed. So, 
I think people were concerned that rather than, you know, community growing denser and more connected, all the young people seem to leave. <laughs> and as a result, there's nobody in charge. There's no established powers. And all the men who thought everybody should defer to them found that people just left <laughs> and had very little power. This is also the time that people who thought that they knew what people should learn in church found out in the second great awakening you're talking about, people are just starting their own churches and the proliferation of all the Protestant denominations competing with one another. Uh, and, you know, the people worried that there's nothing at all to hold this place together. <laughs> you know, if you don't have any boundaries at all. And this is also the time people are setting out by, by water to exploring a, around. So it's a time of, of, there's a famous book that calls from boundlessness. Um, and that's what this feels like, that there's no limit to what the United States can become. And in the middle of all that, they say, well, why don't we just uh, start a war against the most powerful empire on earth? <laughs> and so here we are, we're barely holding things together, but let's, let's go to war. Uh, and by doing so, uh, the War of 1812, uh, they, they're fighting against native enemies all across the vast western boundary. They're fighting against the British all the way from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico and all along the Atlantic coast. It was a very bad idea, but they, and there's a funny video online about, uh, uh, a fake movie trailer for the war of 1812. And the wife asked the husband, so what are you fighting for? And he goes, Sarah, we're fighting for honor, I, I think, or taxes. I, I don't really know. <laughs> and it, it's kind of what that war of 1812 seemed like at the time. It's not immediately clear what's happening, but what happens as a result? is it breaks the power of all the native allies of the British in the, in the West, but it also breaks the power of the British in the Gulf and in the and Great Lakes. So the United States stumbles into this war and emerges out of it with a kind of possibility that it could not have imagined. It also comes out of it with the Star Spangled Banner and uh, uh, the, a flag that, that people can really rally around. So this is the opening scene of how unlikely this history is. Right. But also, uh, the War of 1812 gets us this hunger for the expansion of slavery and maybe the greatest dispossession of Native peoples um, from their lands. Yes? Yeah. You know, if you'd ask people in 1800, what do you imagine the future of slavery is going to be? And you told them it was going to exp extend over an area larger than all the major nations of Europe in the next 60 years. And it was going to become the major driver of the global economy. This is the equivalent of the, of the oil of, of the 20th century was the cotton of the 19th century. And that uh, this is going to put us into a war with Mexico. Um, and that you're going to find 4 million people held in bondage by 1860. People would not have imagined how that could be because in 1800, uh, the cotton economy of England and of the American North had, had not really come into visibility. So something that I think people often forget is that history of slavery and that history of dispossession you mentioned, Michael, go hand in hand. Most of the land that became what we now think of as the South, certainly the Deep South, was taken away from American Indians in the 19th century, uh, beginning with wars, Andrew Jackson in the War of 1812, and then 1820s and 1830s. And so 
there's a direct linkage between the two great wrongs, uh, the two original sins of the United States of stripping the land from its rightful inhabitants and the expansion of the largest and most powerful system of slavery in the modern world in just 60 years. So I think people tend to imagine the South as static, uh, but you have to imagine this being expanded at a remarkable rate because the richest men had a portable labor force that they could drive into Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, and create these plantations that were profitable, immensely profitable in just a couple of years, and doing it on land that was taken away from the Cherokee and the Chocasaw, Choctaws, the Chickasaws, and the Seminoles, and, and before people's eyes. This is not just some process. This is a very concrete struggle. This is a great segue to 1820 to 1832, uh, which is called Reckonings. That's the, the next chapter in the book. And you write that of this period, that whether in literature, politics, reform, or economy, an expectation of change defined America's vision of itself, a place where nothing long remained what it had been. The United States was to become a land of perpetual becoming. And that is something I want you to talk about in broad terms, but you mentioned Andrew Jackson, uh, President Andrew Jackson, and the, the impact that his war on the Native peoples had, and then the beginnings of what you call the counter-narrative, voices of opposition. So talk a little bit about the broad notion of this became, the United States became a land of perpetual becoming, which is a positive vision, right. but at the same time, you've got Andrew Jackson and what he stood for and the beginnings, I think, of what is the sort of the modern Republican Party. Well, Jackson would have seen himself as the agent of becoming. I mean, why did he do this? He says uh, the American Indians have lived here for a long time. They're not developing this. The land is barely occupied. Uh, this could be so much more uh, valuable if uh, the Native people would, would be moved away. So he begins really what's the first great effort of the federal government to take action, which is to remove the Native peoples. And he basically contracts it out to cronies uh, who make a killing out of really poorly planned uh, deportation, especially of the Cherokee, uh, to what's called you know, Indian Territory, now known as Oklahoma. Uh, it's, it's done with great brutality, uh, and it's done with great callousness. And this is the beginning, really, of the northern opposition to Andrew Jackson, uh, even though, of course, the North had removed Native people for a couple hundred years by this time. Uh, they, it was not what was before them right then. And they particularly hated that Jackson was doing this in the name of Christianity because the, the so-called civilized tribes had adapted to Christianity and to settled agriculture and even, frankly, uh, to black slavery um, to uh, sort of prove to the United States that they were civilized people and they deserved to, be, to keep the lands where they lived on. So what you found is that Christians mobilized in defense of these other Christians who were native people. And this is the very first time you have women mobilizing politically and the, the, the so-called ladies circular um, uh, sends a massive petition to Congress and saying, don't do this. Now, here's the thing. It's a little echoes like today. Jackson says, this is my favorite policy. If you're not with me on this, you congressman, 
there will be price to pay because it was very closely balanced. It's not clear this was going, the Indian Removal Act, as it, as it was called, was going to pass. So all these in, women mobilize and say, let's get your congressman not to support this. But it narrowly wins and, uh, and native removal uh, moves. This is when a lot of the people who become abolitionists against slavery first become mobilized. They, they, they come to see that uh, the federal government can be an agent of wrong. And so they mobilize themselves and they're using Christianity. So they found this new language. How can we resist this? Well, let's speak in the language of Christianity that all these people of power claim, but let's also speak in the language of Declaration of Independence, of equality and freedom, which seems to be violated by these. So it's the 1828, 1829, 30 is a time when there's suddenly the first mobilization against the great powers. It's not political, you'll notice, because these people have no political power. They have no political right. These women have no right to speak. <laughs> they just take it. Uh, and black people who have no right to speak are taking it as well. This is also the time when David Walker's appeal, uh, 1829, says that we are suffering under the greatest wrongs of any people in history all at the hands of people who claim to be Christians. This is also the time of Nat Turner, 1831 in Virginia, who says, I've read the Bible. There, it says that there are sometimes there are people who are spoken to and they have to rise up. And that's what I feel that I'm doing. So uh, it's a period of incredible turmoil and of uh, opposition to the powers that be, even as the powers that be are able to do what they want. But interestingly, in this same period of political turmoil, you've got a lot of stuff going on in the arts that is uh, sort of revolutionary, particularly I, I am fond of um, landscape painter yep. Thomas Cole and the creation of the Hudson River School. So talk a little bit about that, because here's a painter who believes that he is no longer tethered to the tired European paintings of old and that he, he can step out into nature and have the greatest um, scenery in the world to paint. Yeah, he doesn't know that when he's grown up. He, he moves here from England, he was 17. Uh, and so he sees it and he grows, comes from a part of England that had been going undergoing industrialization. So he's seeing all this coal and the soot and the railroads and things. And uh, he comes to the United States and goes to the Hudson River Valley and says, okay, we have another chance. We have another chance to not despoil the land but we also have a chance to create a new kind of art. So he goes to England and travels all over Europe and studies uh, uh, all the great art landscape artists. But he comes back and says, you know, all those things have been painted. <laughs> we have many more paintings of Italian ruins do we need? Uh, and instead, we have this incredible landscape. So he invents uh, a vocabulary of painting that, uh, as you say, becomes the Hudson River Valley School, which now seems so obvious to us, but at the time was revolutionary. Um, and uh, so people can't get enough of that. And his uh, followers take it ever more. He's the, among the first to paint in the environment itself, not just to do sketches and come back in the studio. But he says there's something about painting in nature that allows us to connect with nature. Yeah, and in fact, in his journal, he writes, this is in the book, I didn't figure this out all by myself. <laughs> he writes, the painter of American scenery has privileges superior to any other. All nature here is new to art. 
virgin forests, lakes, and waterfalls, feast his eyes with new delights. Isn't that something? And, you know, if you go to the Thomas Cole house, um, they have a beautiful exhibit where his those words are uh, swirling around with images that he painted at the time. You know, I, I'll say that uh, in working on this book, uh, my wife and I traveled 15,000 miles to visit all the places where these things happen. Uh, we visited uh, 24 states and 60 historic sites. And I've written about them in a blog on uh, bunk history. Today, you can read about it. And to stand in the place where Thomas Cole actually painted these things or where Herman Melville wrote M Moby Dick uh, or where on Walton Pond just took our, my breath away. My poor wife had to watch me kind of blubber <laughs> as I'm at these places that had played such a large part of my imagination. And now there I am. So um, to, to Cole is... Um, this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about visions, right? He had a vision of what America could preserve if it had the understanding of how precious this was. Mm. We're going to talk about literature in a little while, but I wanted to just remind the listener that you got to buy the book because there's so much that we're unable to talk about because of time. But this is when you have James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving, uh, John James Audubon, all this is happening there with all these new visions of literature and, and photography and art and, and, and the like. Well, that's partly because in 1820, uh, a not unfriendly British critic says, who across the whole world reads an American book or goes to an American play or sees an American painting? Uh, that's 1820. And so all these people are saying, all right, well, I'll show you. Uh, and they, they, they try. I mean, James, James Fenimore Cooper literally is reading an English novel to his family and he becomes disgusted with it and throws it across the room. He said, I could write a better book than this. And his family says, well, why don't you try? And he sits down and turns out it's hard to write a book, but he does figure it out after a couple of times and becomes one of the best-selling authors in the English-speaking world. And you know, writing about uh, the, the last of the Mohicans uh, becomes sort of the, his big bestseller. Right on the American landscape. And he wondered, would anybody read a book that's actually set on this empty landscape? You know, who cares about America? So it's fun to watch these people. And Washington Irving basically just takes German folktales and moves them <laughs> into the Hudson River Valley, Rip Van Winkle and so forth, but that writes beautifully and becomes an international bestseller as well. So what's exciting about this is just watching these people make it up. <laughs> they have no idea of what an American book might look like. And it, or American painting or an American play or an American song. So that's one thing that's exciting about this. Uh, and one reason I really focus on young people understanding, these are young people who are doing all this. You know, uh, I, I, when you teach high school kids or middle school kids, they imagine that people in the past were old. <laughs> but these are, you know, just 18 to 20 year old who are trying to figure out how the heck you might make your way in the world. So it's fun, you know, People don't really want to read Jason Moore Cooper or Washington Irving right now very much. But if you can go back and imagine what it is that they were trying to do, uh, it's actually exciting to see them inventing this. And one of the things that happens is that Cooper ends up inventing the archetypal hero of American literature, which is the isolated white man living by some code that he understands 
but beyond the bounds of society. This is where the cowboy comes from. It's where so many heroes that we see in Reacher, <laughs> currently streaming, uh, and all these things that these guys who are out there by themselves making this. And that begins in the very first best-selling American novel. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We're talking with Professor Ed Ayers about his new book, American Visions, the United States, 1800 to 1860. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. We're back. So, Professor Ayers, I'd like to turn to 1827 to 1836, which is Rebellions. Uh, That's the chapter's name. And you say within this chapter that there are subtitles that we should be concentrating on freedoms advocates rebellions against slavery native voices and faces and women in public among other things so we've been talking a little bit about the hints of this in the earlier part of the of the ninth of, of the century um but now we're it's becoming clearer. You've got Nat Turner, you've got William Lloyd Garrison, you've got the Liberator, uh, you, you're going to get pretty soon Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and the Seneca Falls stuff. So what, what's going on? And this is the period of, of, of de Tuckville uh, comes to America and gives us his observation. So what, what's going on here in this chapter that you call Rebellions? Now, what's not going on uh, is the point. Uh, a lot of people, it, it really does seem to be spinning out of control at this point. Uh, the, the country just continues to expand. And by this time, you actually do have the first railroads uh, beginning to appear uh, and, and they can expand. But you also have, more importantly, steamboats that are going all the way down to New Orleans um, and just 
that seemed impossible that but more importantly it's coming back from new orleans <laughs> up, up the mississippi river um and so tocqueville comes from france to see well okay uh we're undergoing these this great turmoil in france trying to imagine what a democratic society might be the united states is on the cutting edge what does it look like um and he hangs out first he hugs close to the Atlantic seaboard, especially Boston and New York. And those people are tend to be opponents of Andrew Jackson. And they're saying, you know, we need to be careful because these, it's out of control, this democracy. The real democracy of America, they said, he was here in New England where we have these town meetings and democracies sort of from the ground up. So, and, and voluntary organizations. Now, people who've loved the United States ever since love to quote those parts of de Tocqueville, that he's discovered what democracy looks like. Well, He's discovered what one part of democracy looks like. Uh, and it turns out that he sees mainly uh, the Northeast. When he goes into the South, he is appalled by what democracy has meant in America, which is this expansion of slavery. Uh, and he can see then, early as 1831, that this Democratic Republic is going to have to confront this in some ways. Uh, he is... Um, not as uh, sensitive to uh, the understanding of black people as he might be. Uh, he instead is really looking at it from the viewpoint of, of white Americans. Um, he writes at great length about slavery. Now, this is the same time, as you mentioned, that what we think of as abolitionism, the liberator emerges. And it's also what you see there. And we should remember that a lot of these people are Quakers, who are motivated by their belief that all of us are equal in the eyes of God. Um, and so they are speaking against the powers that be. The person I find especially powerful in all of this is Angelina Grimke, who is the daughter of uh, a slaveholding family in Charleston, South Carolina. She and her sister Sarah uh, feel they have to flee uh, their families and South Carolina. And Grimke reads William Lloyd Garrison's brave uh, statements in the newspaper. He's only in his 20s. But she decides to write an appeal to the fellow white women of the South. And she says, I know you're Christians. I know you know the golden rule, which is to treat others as you would want to be treated. Would you want your wife to be a slave? your daughter, your son, you yourself? If not, you're violating Christ's teachings. When that book arrived in Charleston, it was burned in public, and she was told she could never come there again. So I want people to understand how much people risk. William Lloyd Garrison's dr dragged through the streets of Boston at the end of a chain. Uh, for People furious at the, at the words he was saying. People are also throwing rocks through windows and burning down the church where Grimke is speaking. So there is so much at stake, and I think it's easy for us to imagine that, of course, slavery was going to end, but it certainly didn't seem that way in 1830. It was just growing stronger and stronger, was stealing this land from the native people, and, and people worried that it was going to drive the United States into war again, too. So um, it's there are these voices of rebellion, partly because things seem so desperately bad. This is when all kinds of violence is breaking out. There are riots in, across the North against the abolitionists uh, who are uh, and, uh, in Illinois. One is killed. So 
these are not just words. <laughs> this is not just writing an op-ed. Uh, this is putting your very life at risk. And uh, that's what this chapter is trying to show. Yeah. But I have something uh, that perplexed me a little bit okay. uh, as well, which is you write uh, in America. This is the Tuckville writing. In America, I saw the freest, most enlightened men living in the happiest circumstances to be found anywhere in the world. Yet, it seemed to me that their features were habitually veiled by a sort of a cloud. They struck me as grave and almost sad in their pleasures. Everyone worried about falling behind everybody else. What, what was that about? Well, it goes back to our earlier conversation about what happens when there's no boundaries, when there's no limits, when there's no, never enough, <laughs> uh, when you have your farm, but you know that maybe 150 miles to the west, there's a better farm that's there for the taking, um, that you know that somewhere there's a brand new community that you might become a leading man. Um, and that with the population constantly moving and people moving away from their parents, uh, there's a great sense of loneliness. Uh, imagine being a woman having a child with basically no help around. Uh, so I think that what you find is that without any limit of expectation, People made themselves unhappy. <laughs> this becomes sort of a, a theme that many of foreign observers have seen in, in American history ever since, that there seems to be a kind of a desperation. Maybe remember uh, Thoreau's quote, uh, people living lives of quiet desperation, that I can never get enough. I can never get all that I deserve. That's what Tocqueville is seeing. Mm. It, I guess then is a good transition to the next period, this 1836 to 1848, which you call reflections. So maybe this is the beginning of some in introspection, some um, reflection. You write of this period that Americans sought a language adequate to the possibilities of a new nation, rejecting the strictures and sacraments of Protestant Christianity, rejecting the standards of art and literature inherited from Europe, and rejecting new boundaries of political control imposed by those in power. Yeah, this is when what we think of is really sort of the first indigenous American philosophy comes out, transcendentalism. But just think how weird that is, <laughs> you know, that uh, it's, it's coming out of New England, uh, which we think of as, you know, Puritan New England. But uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and uh, Henry David Thoreau and Margaret Fuller, they're all saying, you know, I'm inspired by nature. Uh, directly and God speaking to me directly. I don't really believe in the sacraments of uh, the churches and I don't believe in the authority of political leaders and I don't believe uh, that um, uh, the, the inequality against women should be in place. So where in the world does this come from? Uh, it's partly triggered by uh, what we think of romanticism in Europe, but basically they're looking around and saying, Let's take what this country has to offer, which is unlimited freedom. And what do we think that should be? That people should be equal and people should have direct connection with uh, inspiration. So it's they also, which is one thing I will point out. These are the people we teach as the beginning of American culture. <laughs> But think how unlike most American culture it really is. Uh, and and uh, I think we kind of defang a lot of this. Uh, we take out the, the drama. We, we teach us Emerson about self-reliance, which sounds like 
good, especially for teenagers. Hey, be self-reliant. But what's he really saying? Yeah, believe what you want about God. <laughs> That's a, a, a bolder statement than, than, than I think maybe we intend to teach. Uh, so they basically unshackled themselves from anything of convention. Um, and Margaret Fuller, uh, who's brilliant, raised with learning all these languages, can't find a role for herself. And so she writes a book saying, there's no such thing as male and female. The two blend into each other. The boundary is fluid. Um, and that as a result, women can do anything. And she has a famous saying, let them be sea captains if they will. Uh, so, you know, I think people like to imagine they, they patronize this period as being a time of Victorian or the cult of true womanhood. But they forget that these women they are having many, many children. So there is uh, sexual activity going on <laughs> at, at a great rate. And so this prim and proper thing that we're imagining is not true. But also that people can see right then that these definitions of what's male and female are arbitrary. And so people are saying that. So that's what I'm talking about uh, in this period being kind of revolutionary, is that people are saying unthinkable things. And Emerson travels all around, and he manages to convey all this in his public speaking, that people think they like what he's saying. <laughs> if they listen really carefully, they, they would in some ways be shocked. Yeah. In fact, wasn't he the one, was it Emerson who gave a speech at Harvard and was then uninvited back to it for the next 40 years? Yep, uh, Harvard Divinity School. They invited him to come in to talk to the new graduates in Harvard Divinity. He says, yeah, you know, all the stuff you've just been taught, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, and, and what he says is that there are still miracles happening, that nature is a miracle, right? And this, is, this goes back into, you know, the visions theme you asked me about at the beginning, Michael, is that people are believing that angels are, are speaking directly to them and telling them that there should be a new religion created in America or the dead people are speaking to them in spiritualism. And so this far from being a staid and conventional time, this is a time of really kind of rebellion. It's hard for us to imagine now. People are questioning fundamental reality. And so, yeah, Emerson, he does all this and then somehow still becomes kind of a rock star. He, he's really sort of the first big public intellectual in America. And people are kind of shocked and want to go out. Yeah, you know, he writes home, people are expecting him to be transcendental tonight again. I'm not really sure how I'm going to do that, but I'll do my best. It, it's funny. When I read this section of the book, I thought, well, this is the, the 1960s in, in, in a sense. Yeah, and the 1960s very clearly are, are inspired by Thoreau in particular, who just basically says, you know, I don't need any of this. <laughs> and, and the and back to nature and all that, these folks are inventing that, but you're exactly right. Uh, and that's one reason he's not really rediscovered until the 1960s. Uh, it, he seems to be speaking to people in a way that generations in between had not really heard. Well, a lot was going on, though, in uh, the field of education, in, in this period too with, with Horace Mann. And tell us about that. Well, this idea that there should be public education paid for by taxpayers is a new concept. Now we think of that as sort of being common sense. And, and this is in Massachusetts where we would think if any place is going to be, you know, supporting public education, it's going to be Massachusetts. But he go from, he rode to every county uh, in, in the state, uh, on horseback himself and would have big meetings and try to get people. And they would say, why should I pay money to educate somebody else's child? 
<laughs> that doesn't make sense. Uh, but he did persuade them to do that. He did that for, for 12 years, I think. Um, and other states began to copy Massachusetts. But we need to remember at the time of the Civil War, many states, especially those in the South, had no public education. That's a result of, of emancipation. So something that we take for granted, this goes back to the theme of the book, a lot of what you think America is was invented at this time. Here's a case as well. Something else was invented at this time was um, conflicts over uh, what can be taught in schools. And so Catholic people are saying, I'm sending my children to these schools in New York, and they're being, you know, inundated with Protestant teaching. We want to have our own schools. There's big fights then as well. So a lot of things we talk about today about privatization, let parents call the shots and all that, uh, that was there from the very beginning. And we see the beginning of modern publishing here, right? This is, is this the period of Nathaniel Hawthorne and Edgar Allan Poe and Sarah Hale and others? Yeah, but it, they would have laughed about being modern because, you know, it's still hard to be an author in terms of the business of it. But then most, there's no copyright. So Charles Dickens comes to America. He's the most popular writer in America. Uh, he's only 30 years old at the time. He's just done Oliver Twist and he's on this rock star tour. But everywhere he goes, he says, people are just stealing my books and printing them. I'm, I'm not getting any money from the, any of these books you Americans are writing. And so Edgar Allan Poe, who's kind of a hero in the story, he gets, I think, $10 for writing The Raven. And then it's published all over the United States. There's no copyright. No, any newspaper can publish it any way they want. And he doesn't make anything from it. Um, and so all these writers uh, find it's almost impossible to make a living as a writer. Poe is trying to invent what that would look like. He's an editor. He writes reviews, many of them very brutal, <laughs> um, and will write all these stories. And notice he focuses on stories rather than novels because you can sell a story, you know, for $10 and maybe make a living. But And Hawthorne, uh, you know, gives up on the idea. Uh, he tries to make a living for 20 years. Uh, finally writes this book, Scarlet Letter. He says, you know, we'll see how this does. You know, And it's the first book that he's actually able to sustain himself. He's able to rent a house with the money he makes from it. So that gives you some idea. And another thing to think about, Herman Melville uh, makes $553 off Moby Dick. <laughs> so gives you any authors out there who might be feeling bad about ourselves, uh, it was worse back then. My goodness. Then the, the next period, which is an overlapping period, is um, explorations. You write that the United States acknowledged no boundaries to its ambitions, justified by the rationales of natural progress, limitless wealth, provincial destiny. The leaders of the country imposed their will on anyone who might oppose them. So this is beginning of really what's going to manifest itself in 1861. Um, we're coming out of the depression, the panic of 1837, right? And railroads are expanding and whaling is at its peak and the Oregon Trail is exploding and California's gold rush is about to begin. Coal is replacing wood. So this is a, and I guess also maybe most importantly, that the telegraph is beginning. So talk about this this period of explorations. It's like we're not just exploring foreign lands, which we did, but we're exploring sort of all sorts of boundaries. 
Yeah, and uh, the most important one uh, was the war against Mexico. Uh, so you're right, this, this panic they go th- goes deep into the 1840s. Meantime, uh, Anglo settlers are invited into what's now Texas uh, to settle, um, and they, they bring in all these uh, white people who also bring in uh, African-American slaves. Mexico has outlawed slavery. But they need this settlement in the north of Mexico because the Comanches and Apaches or other indigenous people are uh, res- resisting, raiding uh, the, the farmsteads of Mexicans. So Texas, uh, people will remember the Alamo, I'm sure, and Davy Crockett and all of that. Uh, that's the Texas Revolution. Now, however, by the 1840s, uh, the United States thinks it should bring in Texas as a part, and Texas asks it to. The Republic of Texas can't really sustain itself. And so we basically provoke a war with Mexico um, and over- defeat Mexico. And this is why the United States has the shape that it does. You mentioned the gold rush. Nobody knows that there is that gold there, but really within months of the United States taking California from Mexico, the gold rush hits. So if you want to think about the largest expansions in American history, Louisiana Purchase, but then the war against Mexico in which we take almost half of Mexico um, and becomes the United States. So this is also the time when the United States launches the last sailing expedition around the world in which uh, connection Antarctica is discovered by the United States. A fact I think many people don't know, uh, but also when our connections with Hawaii uh, become strengthened, but also when we're really exploring the Pacific coast of the United States for the first time. So even though this exploration has been going on as late as the 1850s, uh, this is all still new, you know, and to the, to the Pacific. So all these explorations, the country, even though the telegraph has been invented, starting to expand, the tele, the railroads were expanding until this panic and then they slowed down. The 1850s is when all this really takes off. The railroads connect, the telegraph lines connect, the, the uh, exploration to the uh, trails to Oregon and California fill in. Uh, and what happens as a result is that the Civil War results. <laughs> so th- that's the connection between all of this is that this expansion is the very thing that brings on the near destruction of the United States. And informed by notions of manifest destiny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the idea is that this is God's will, uh, that we take Mexico, we take this land from the Catholics because they've proven themselves unable to govern. They are racially mixing uh, with native people. Um, And um, so clearly uh, God, providence, uh, wants us to take that land and to, to improve it. And also to take it from the Comanches and the other native people of the plains. What's important to understand is that people at the time said, this is nonsense. You know, there's no such thing as race, they say. Uh, this is when the, the language of race is really invented. But we have quotes of people in Congress saying, there's no such thing as the Anglo-Saxon race. England was invaded over and over again. There's, there's no one uh, Anglo-Saxon race. And that the, the notion that we are the only people on earth capable of democracy is a violation of the fundamental spirit of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> All people are created equal. 
All peoples are created equal. So I think we look back on it today. You'll often hear people say, well, people just didn't know that race was wrong, that racism was wrong. People, that's just not, they did know. And they said that this is nonsense. They also said that it's nonsense to, to cloak our desire for land as God's will. So it's kind of the theme of the book is that there was never a time of just sheer innocence when white Americans didn't know better. People told one another, yes, uh, this is wrong, but they kept on doing it. And so the 1850s are the time when suddenly you actually have a continental nation uh, when you can, uh, yeah, it's still really hard to get to California. <laughs> you don't have a transcontinental railroad until after the Civil War. But what you do find is that uh, people can imagine that this is what the United States was always destined to be. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Are you suffering from a narcissistic co-parent or feeling alienated from your own children? Or maybe you're just tired of getting multiple emails, texts, and voicemails from your co-parent that make you want to scream. Hey, this is Diane Dirks and Rick Voiles inviting you to listen to our popular podcast, Co-Parent Dilemmas, where we give practical solutions to those with impossible co-parents. Each week, we answer your questions and help you understand how to prioritize your kids while setting life-saving co-parent boundaries. We promise you'll think we've been living in your house. Listen to Co-Parent Dilemmas. If you've got a difficult co-parent, you can't afford not to. We're talking with Ed Ayers about his new book, American Visions, the United States, 1800 to 1860. 
and we've been talking about explorations and the boundaries of the United States, but I want to sort of flip it in a sense and talk about your chapter 1845 to 1850, which is voyages. And we talk about this in terms of a period of movement. You write that more people moved to the United States between 1820 and 1860 than had lived here in 1790. 150,000 immigrants in 1820, 600,000 in 1840, 2.8 million in the 1850s. You have the Irish potato famine and other things going on. So what, what is this voyages um, period about as, as, you, as you see it? And I'll come clean with you here, Michael, since I've, I've developed trust in you in the last hour. So I'll just go ahead and say this. So uh, I'm, the voyages are those of the, the immigrants who are desperate and come to the United States and actually find a better life than really they could have imagined. It's important for us to remember that. It's also the voyages that I just mentioned around the world that bring back all the, uh, the materials that become the Smithsonian Institution. But it's also two tragic voyages of um, Margaret Fuller, who dies within 300 yards of Long Island um, as her ship wrecks, uh, in many ways the most outspoken, articulate uh, female intellectual of America dies then. Uh, but it's also when uh, Edgar Allan Poe dies on a brief voyage from Richmond up to New York City um, and dies of delirium along the way for reasons we still don't understand. Uh, and it's also the time when uh, a group of women in a very out-of-the-way place, Seneca Falls, New York, there on the Erie Canal, uh, decide that uh, the Declaration of Independence should say all men and women are created equal. So all these things I, I portray as voyages of people setting out for an unknown destination of where they might be. Uh, I'll come clean. It's, it's hard to write a book in which you try to include everything <laughs> uh, from all the way from the very material, like you talk about the discovery of fossil fuels, uh, to things like poetry. So what, what ties it? But it's also very important to understand that things are happening simultaneously, right? That, that at the very time that these things are happening, other people are having these visions. So it's a, uh, juxtaposition is an important part. Uh, it's not just uh, sort of homogenizing the story so that it all fits together. Sometimes the jarring is supposed to be a part of what the story is about. Yeah, and you see that in this chapter um, on sort of the dichotomy between science, hard science, geology yeah. and stuff, and uh, spiritualism. So talk about, because that, that sort of embodies some of the tension that you're, yeah. you're talking about here. Well, when, when everything is open for interpretation, uh, who knows that we cannot communicate with the spirits of the dead? When you're seeing electricity really develop for the first time, and you're able to see that you're able to com convey information instantaneously over a thousand miles, who's to say that you couldn't talk to your deceased child through some kind of electrical communication? Um, and who knows really uh, what humans are? <laughs> uh, if, if we set aside the biblical story, as some were willing to do, then how do you explain human uh, appearances? Of course, is when Darwin thinks of evolution. So. What you find is that in a time when uh, religious faith is everywhere and yet 
challenged. And when science seems to be discovering all kinds of new facets of, of life, uh, it makes people believe that what we now think of as spooky spiritualism might be scientific. Their newspapers are actually uh, named after scientific uh, topics, and they believe that the, the same methods of science that are going to allow us to communicate across space are going to allow us to communicate across the boundary of death. Hmm. The the last thing I want to talk about before we move to the uh, confrontations and then really take us taking us out to to South Carolina and the beginning of the war was a part of the book that I didn't have much familiarity with, which was George Perkins' Marsh and yeah. his climate change warnings of the uh, 1845 to 1850 period. So talk about this. This is eye-opening to me. Isn't that amazing? I, yeah. I have to admit, I didn't I didn't know a lot of this when I started researching the book. Uh, yeah, there's two kinds of environmental, uh, three, three environmental heroes in the book. One, of course, is uh, Thoreau, who chronicles everything that happens down to the, the smallest scale uh, and fuses the science that you were talking about with what we now think of as almost mystical connection with what nature was. But there's also Susan Fenimore Cooper. You'll recognize that middle name, the daughter of James Fenimore Cooper, who writes a book called Rural Hours in 1850 in that Charles Darwin ends up reading because she's suggesting that plants are adapting themselves to uh, their particular environment. And she says, my fellow farmers, is there any reason to cut down every single tree? <laughs> is there any reason to uh, to desecrate the landscape? And George Perkins Marsh, who speaks 20 languages, ends up becoming American ambassador to Turkey and is a brilliant man and writes one of the founding books of American environmentalism, goes in 1847 to speak to uh, an agricultural fair in Vermont where he's from. And he goes, we all know that the climate's getting hotter because of the way that we've cut down all the trees. Look around here in Vermont and you can see the hard rains wash away everything and we're just left with gravel. So he, he understands as early as 1847, the dynamics of global warming. So that's another point of the book is that in the same way that people understood the definitions of gender were not what people claimed and the definitions of race were not what people claimed, people understood that the American's relationship with nature could be other than conquering it as fast as it could. So uh, I imagine a readership of this book being young people. I'd want them to know that that people have been able to see uh, our relationship with the land longer than they might imagine, and, and to take heart from that, that um, there's their voices in the American past that can, can still speak to us. But it is amazing, isn't it, and that he uh, can understand the dynamic of cutting down trees and building fires uh, leading to global warming. The book ends with chapters called Culminations and the sword and the noose, and they, they sort of fit together in a sense. And you write of culminations that this time, the new nation, this is 1855 to 1860, the new nation lacked the resilience to weather the long building crisis that threatened to engulf everyone and everything. No one could find the language to imagine a union that was not divided. Americans had exhausted their goodwill, patience, trust, and empathy 
over the preceding decades. Despite efforts to rebuild on the ruins of Mount Vernon and to market the memory of Washington crossing the Delaware, a sense of shared patriotism proved impossible. It had become not just fashionable, but the, the belief that in the South, that you couldn't trust anyone in the North, and in the North, you couldn't trust anyone in the South, and that people spoke in completely um, unguarded language about the, the moral character, the evil quality of each other. And so what that meant was, is that when in the election of 1860, the Democrats broke apart and created an opening for this brand new party, the Republican Party, uh, with only 40% of the vote to elect their, pre their uh, candidate president of the United States because of the Electoral College, um, there, was no, there were no resources to draw on. Uh, the people thought, this country is, our grandfathers created this country. How can we destroy it? How can we? And of course, the, the South says, you're the ones who are destroying it in the North. You're the ones who, the Bible does not say that slavery is wrong, and yet you are preaching a false gospel that it is. We are just upholding the Constitution that gives us the right to hold enslaved people uh, as our property. And now you're challenging that. And you have a president who says he's going to stop the expansion of slavery. So we believe that you've abrogated the, uh, the trust that created this nation. We're leaving. We're going to create the Confederacy. People in the North say you are traitors who are clearly violating the spirit of the New Testament, that people should not hold other people in slavery, and you are destroying the, the very idea of the union that our fathers died to create. And they can't really believe that the other side is going to live up to what they're saying. They talk themselves into the Civil War. They bluff themselves into the Civil War. Well, if you do this, we're going to do this. And then once they do this, each option narrows and narrows until the only option is, are you going to secede or not? Virginia votes five times not to secede because they say, well, if there's going to be a war, let's imagine where it's going to be, which turns out to be the case. But they also say, we're the home of the founding fathers. We wrote the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. How can we be the ones to destroy it? But people said, but Virginia is also the, the state with the largest number of enslaved people. We have no choice but to join our sister slave states in this confederacy. And so what you found, and people will notice the echoes of our own time here, that words have consequences, that if you say these things and, and betray the very honesty or sincerity or goodwill of your opponents, uh, you don't leave yourself any recourse at a moment of crisis. And that's what happened in 1860 and 1861. The last chapter, The Sword and the Noose, though, ends on a positive note, I think, in the sense, yes, we have the Civil War and, and everyone knows something about that. Um, but you're right that the war created an opening for advocates of freedom to fulfill the most profound transformation in the nation's history. In their victory, the power of a vision sustained in the face of a disheartening history was proven. People for a long time blamed the abolitionists for starting the Civil War. And what I say, no, they didn't start the Civil War, but they started emancipation. What they did is they started freedom because Lincoln does not have, does not believe, does not have the constitutional right to end slavery when the war begins. But once the white South 
leaves, tr uh, betrays the Constitution. Lincoln says, I'm no longer bound by that. You are in rebellion against the United States. I can end slavery. Well, what happens once you end slavery? Well, these abolitionists, especially Frederick Douglass, says, clearly, you need to live up to the principles of the founding of the nation. All men are created equal. You need to be sure that everyone has freedom and beyond that has a, a say in how the country is run. If the abolitionists for 30 years had not been attacking the idea of the justice of slavery and of the injustice of racism, the United States would not have had the resources to have imagined emancipation. So that's what I mean by that. And that's and what this final sentences that you read, Michael. We're living in a disheartening period of history right now. But we have reservoirs of strength and goodwill and determination and democracy that we can tap, that can come back to life. And so that's why I wrote this book. What might those sources be? And there are people that we admire in American history, Emerson and Whitman, Thoreau, Douglas. They still speak to us. Which is why the very first sentence of the book is how I'm going to end our conversation, where you write, this book is about visions, imagined paths between things as they are and what they might become. That's where we are, right? I hadn't thought of that to tell you the truth, that it makes a great circle. But yes, that's the idea, is that right now our limit of vision seems to be tomorrow's headline. Oh no, what's terrible things going to happen then? But we need to remember that uh, what these people remembered is that the Declaration of Independence does talk about a land of equality and freedom. We can still attain that. The book is American Visions, the United States, 1800 to 1860. Professor Ayers, I'm very grateful for you taking the time to speak to us today on that said. It was my honor, Michael. Thank you so much. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I am Michael Zeldin.